The title of our Bible study today is Show Me Your Glory. Show Me Your Glory. Let's read the first six verses together. I'll then provide a little bit of context. Um, We'll read a little bit more and then we'll pray. So again, Exodus 33, starting in verse 1, follow along with me. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it, and I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the, uh, and when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come up in your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. Pause there with me for just a moment. What in the world is going on here? We've just dived in here in the middle of the book of Exodus, Exodus 33. So to provide some context... You guys are a smart bunch, you know your Bibles. Moses is the leader of the Hebrew people. And God calls Moses to go back to the land of Egypt where his people are in their slavery and go and release my people from their slavery. So the Israelites have been slaves in the land of of Egypt, the Bible says, for 400 years. And now finally, God provides a deliverer for his people. His name is Moses. He says, go back to the land of Egypt. And then God, through the hand of Moses, Moses being his vessel, um, performs all of these supernatural things to prove to the Pharaoh that God means business. And so then all of the 12 plagues happen Finally, Pharaoh lets the people go. What then happens? They get to the Red Sea. The people are then stuck between the Red Sea. Pharaoh changes his mind, chases after Pharaoh. Now what are the people going to do? Well, God then supernaturally parts the Red Sea, right? The Israelite people, with Moses as their leader, they pass through the Red Sea on dry ground. Then uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians chase after the Israelite people. God swallows them up with the Red Sea. Finally, now Moses and the Israelite people are free. And God says, I'm going to lead you to the land which I promised to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But before we get there, listen, we need to resolve something. You're now my people, God's saying. I've adopted you. And so I'm going to make a covenant to you. But I need you to abide by the covenant. What's the covenant called? The Ten Commandments. So God tells Moses, Moses, meet with me up on on the top of Mount Sinai, there in the wilderness. That's where I'm going to meet with you. I'm going to give you the Ten Commandments. Well, what happens then when Moses is up on the Ten Commandments? Remember? The people get restless. They go to Moses' brother Aaron. They say, Aaron, listen, we don't know where Moses has been. He's been gone a long time up on that mountain. We're getting a little bit restless here. Here's our idea, Aaron, if you're cool with this. Could you just make us a God that we could physically worship? Well, Aaron, Moses' brother, says, you know what? Not a bad idea. 
And while Moses is up on the mountain, the Bible says that Aaron fashions this image made of gold, and it's a calf. And really, it's, it's a young calf is a bull, and this is really Baal. They are worshiping Baal, or Baal, the, the Israelite people. They have rebelled against the Lord, and now they are worshiping and celebrating this golden calf, whom they now claim, this is the God who led us out of Egypt. Well, when Moses comes down off the mountain, the Bible actually uses this word that Moses is hot. Moses comes down off the mountain when he sees the camp celebrating and worshiping this golden image. And so the Bible says when Moses gets closer, hearing all of the singing and dancing, he approaches his brother Aaron. He's like, Aaron, what in the world is going on here? I've been on the top of the mountain not too long, and you have so quickly led this people into idolatry. Aaron says, listen, Moses, Moses, Mo, Mo, can I I call you Mo? (laughs) Listen, the people, we didn't know where you were. You were gone pretty, you know, a pretty long time. We, you know, we just got a little bit restless. And the people, the Bible actually says in Exodus chapter 32, verses 19 through 24, Aaron uses this excuse. He says, listen, the people were getting a little bit restless. They came to me, your brother, and they said, we want to worship a golden image. And so I just said, well, give me all your gold. I threw it into a pot, out popped this calf. That's literally what Aaron says. Like, I didn't even do it. Like, when I threw the gold in, just, this calf just came to be. Okay, so then we get to our passage here in Exodus 33, where Moses is so frustrated and discouraged with God's people. Why? I mean, can you imagine? You're one of the Hebrew people, and you see the different ways that God has provided you, has released you and freed you from your slavery, performed all of the plagues, parted the Red Sea, you walk through on dry ground, and as soon as you get through the Red Sea, your heart's being so fickle, you've already departed the God who provided for you? Moses is so frustrated, the Bible says, he throws the Ten Commandments down, the two tablets break. It's a sad story there in Exodus 32, where Moses says, whoever's on the side of the Lord, come to me. The tribe of Levi rallies to Moses, and Moses says, I want you to go into the camp, and I want you to kill your brothers the ones who have rebelled against the Lord. The Bible says that 3,000 people died because of their rebellion. Moses then goes to meet with the Lord here in Exodus 33, and he says, listen, I'm gonna go meet with the Lord, and maybe, just maybe, I can somehow atone for your egregious sin. The verses we just then read, Exodus 33, verses one through three, God tells Moses, he says, listen up, Moses. He says, you guys can go, go to the promised land, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to drive out all your enemies. But I'm not going to go with you anymore. And it's a sad scene here. I want us to finish reading. Pick this back up with me in verse 12. Exodus 33, verse 12. So Moses goes into a tent to meet with the Lord. The Bible says a pillar of smoke descends upon the tent. And the Bible says that Moses and God now have a conversation like a friend would to a friend. And it says in verse 12, chapter 33, then Moses said to the Lord, and he's pleading with the Lord here, he's begging with the Lord here. Then Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you 
and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. Verse 14, and God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, then don't bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except that you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I do know you by name. Verse 18 is our our key verse this morning. And so Moses said, please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But God said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen." Again, the title of our Bible study today is Show Me Your Glory. Let's pray. Father God, now we just come before you. We ask that you would just fill this place with your peace, with your presence, with your power. And I pray that you would teach us now by your Holy Spirit as we study your word, that you would encourage us, comfort us, convict us. Whatever you need to do by your Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would get me out of the way and that you would go to work now in this place. We love you, we worship you, and now we take time to learn more about you and surrender to you in the process. Do this work now by your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everybody said together, amen. Well, I'd like to talk with us today about God's glory and specifically how God's glory is at work in the life of the believer. Now, what's the very first thing that kind of comes to your mind when you hear that word glory? There's a few different things that come to my mind. Uh, Maybe for those of you who grew up playing sports and maybe you played baseball and you hit that walk-off homer to end the game in the ninth and everyone's chanting your name and you are receiving the glory for that moment, meaning that you're getting all of the praise, all of the recognition, all of the honor, Maybe in some kind of vain way, sometimes selfishly, because we're humans, like we want the glory, meaning that we want to be seen, we want honor, praise, recognition, adoration. Um, Maybe for those of you who you like to restore old cars, and kind of a phrase you might use is, I'd love to restore this car to its former glory, meaning that you'd love to restore that car back to its former beauty and the splendor of that old car. Uh, Maybe for those of you who love to travel, you go to Greece or you go to Rome, those ancient cities, and the glory of those ancient cities is its old ancient architecture and the old cathedrals. And glory in that context means that those cathedrals and that architecture, the glory of the city means it makes that place unique, makes it magnificent, um, awe-inspiring. Now, in the context of the Bible... In relation to God and His glory, the Bible uses the word glory roughly 600 times. It's a major theme all throughout the Bible. And the word, the Greek word in the New Testament, you see the word glory all throughout the New Testament. The Greek word for glory in the New Testament is the word doxa. 
It's where we get our word doxology, meaning to sing or speak the praises of the Lord. Uh, but the Hebrew word here in the, New Te- uh, here in the Old Testament, rather, in Exodus 33, we see the word glory two times. And it says, uh, the Hebrew word there uh, is the word kabod or kavod in Hebrew. And the Hebrew word kabod, it means glory, weight, splendor, beauty, and majesty. Even remember in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we see that word kavod, kabod, used again. But in 1 Samuel chapter 4, it's a super interesting passage. The Ark of the Covenant is supposed to represent and symbolize in a, real, in, a, in a real way God's presence or God's glory, the Ark of the Covenant. And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Bible tells us that the Ark of the Covenant was kidnapped, was taken, was stolen by the Philistines, the enemy of the Israelites, in battle. So the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant, and in a sense, God's presence, God's glory has left. Well, Eli, who is the priest at the time, he has a, a son named Phineas. Well, Phineas's wife has a baby at the very same time that the Ark of the Covenant has left. And she names her son Ichabod, Ichabod, Ichavod, meaning no glory. God's glory has left. God's glory has departed. So she names her son Ichabod. That's pretty cruel. I mean, that's hard. Like, you grow up being Ichabod. I mean, you're, you're getting picked last, you know, at kickball. It's just happening. Like, okay, fine, we'll take no glory. We'll take him. And Ichabod means, again, no glory. Like, God's glory has left. The Ark of the Covenant has gone. But that's really what they did in ancient Bible times. They tended to name their children based upon the current circumstances. So she names her child Ichabod. The glory has left. We see this again in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, Isaac and Rebekah, they have two twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And they name their two twin boys based upon what they look like coming out of the womb. And so Esau comes out first, and the Bible says that he, even as a baby, was hairy. So goat boy comes out of the womb, and they look at this kid, and they're like, well, we really have no other choice but to name him Esau, Esau, meaning hairy. So you got hairy... Jacob comes out grasping Esau's heel, because remember, they're twins, and they name Jacob Yaakov, meaning heel grasper. So you got Harry and heel grasper here, two twin boys. Now, that's what they did in Bible times, but as I was kind of like studying, I was like, you know what? This is kind of what my parents did when they named their own kids. Because you can look up my name, the name Austin, it means majestic. Because obviously, you know, none of of you were there at the time, but you just got to imagine. As I am coming out, the voices of angels just fill the room. And just this bright light just shining forth. And my parents really have no other choice but to name Majestic. Okay, now the name Tyler means conehead. Um... Now, I wasn't there either, but this is what my parents tell me. Like, we had, they had no other choice. But like, it was a lengthy process. Kind of just elongated the skull a bit. But he's fine now. You've seen him. He has a beautiful head. He was doing announcements, and he's a beautiful man. And so, all is well. All is well. 
But this is kind of what they tended to do in Bible times. So 1 Samuel 4, e kavod, no glory, the glory has left. So here again, Exodus 33, they go from Exodus 32 to the grief of their rebellion and their idolatry. I mean, again, just imagine the God who has provided supernatural miracles has just displayed his power through marvelous feats, defeating the Egyptians. And now they have so quickly abandoned their God to this golden calf. And Moses is now meeting with the Lord. And the Lord says, listen, Moses, again, you guys go, but I can't go with you. I'm, true, I, I'm too frustrated with this people. How quickly they've left me. How quickly they've abandoned me. Imagine God's heart just breaking over their sin, their sexual immorality, and their rebellion. And so they go from grief in chapter 32 to then Moses asking in chapter 33, please, show me your glory. And it's really a sad scene here because what Moses is saying is like, God, you can't leave. Like, I can't do this. Like, you got to come. And we just hear the desperate heart and plea of Moses here in chapter 33, where God says, I can't go anymore. And Moses is begging the Lord, please. And he even says in chapter 33, he says, listen, if you don't go, I don't go. Like, there's no way that if you stay, that I'm leaving. And so in verse 18, when Moses asks, God, show me your glory. It's this desperate call for God to show him more of himself. It's this desperate plea that Moses is making saying, God, take me deeper into the beauty of your presence. Please don't leave me. I need to stay with you. Show me more of who you are. And the Bible says that God is gracious to Moses. And he reassures Moses in the verses we just read. He says, Okay, he says, it's going to be okay. I'm going to go. I'll go with you. I will be with you. And he then reinstitutes the covenant there in chapter 34, and he makes him two new tablets of the Ten Commandments. And he says, okay, I will go with you, but if we're going to go, we got to have a fresh start. And Moses is begging the Lord, take me deeper into your presence. And God is gracious. He answers Moses' prayer. He says, come back the next morning. He says, when you come back, I'm going to put you into the cleft of the rock. And as I pass by, I'm going to cover your face because you're unable to see my face. Why? He says, because no man can see my face and live. This is how brilliant the glory of God's face is. The Bible would say in the New Testament in 1 Timothy, Timothy would say, uh, Paul would write to Timothy, he said, he'd say that God dwells in unapproachable light so that no man has ever seen or can see God. And so the brilliance of God's face is too overwhelming that he tells Moses, I will show you more of my glory, but you can't see my face. So I'm going to cover your face with my hand, and as I pass by, I will remove my hand from your face so that you can see the back of me, so you can see my back. 
And again, God is gracious. He says, I'm going to be gracious to you, Moses. I'm going to be compassionate towards you in this way. And I will take you and draw you deeper into my presence. And the question that I pose to us this morning is just like Moses, are we as bold and are we as desperate to go deeper into God's presence? As you all know and as is obvious to see as you kind of just take a look at the landscape of our nation, God's glory in our nation has grown dim. Why? Because of the rebellion of our, of our nation. We have, as a nation, what once was founded upon God's word and biblical principles, we have now strayed from biblical principles, we have strayed from God's word, we have gone into rebellion, we have resisted the Lord because of our sin, we have gone deep into sexual immorality, other sins that just blanket our nation and thus God's glory has grown dim. Why? Because of our own rebellion. And even within the church, we can become apathetic because the world begins to shape us into its mold and thus that that spiritual apathy then turns into a lack of desperation for seeing more of God's glory in our lives. We lack the desire to go deeper with the Lord. Do you know that God desires to draw you into his heart in such a deep, intimate way where he just completely overwhelms you by the Holy Spirit? And I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but when you've just met with the Lord in the secret quiet place and he pours his Holy Spirit upon you, it's just overwhelming. You can't stay there. The euphoria of being in the presence of God, it's just too overwhelming that it's like, God, I can't even handle just the love that you have just now lavished upon me undeservedly because I'm a dirty sinner and I don't deserve how you have just poured out your spirit upon me. Do you know that God wants to do that to each and every single one of us when we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus Christ? He fills you with his Holy Spirit and now he desires to take you deeper into his presence. And so my heart for us this morning is that we wouldn't just come and do church. You realize, like, just coming into this building, just singing a few songs, checking the box and doing church, just because we think it's a religious obligation or a religious duty, that's the last thing I want. I don't want to be here if that's all we're going to do. If all we are going to do is just come into this room and just see some friendly faces and say hi to one another and just have a nice social gathering of a social club where we just, we check the box we are, we are wasting our time. But God uniquely wants us to gather into his house to worship him, to fellowship with other believers, to be encouraged, to mature and grow in the word. Why? So that he can continue to mature us and take us deeper into his presence so that we shed sin in our lives and we grow deeper by the power of his Holy Spirit. You ready for that? You want that for your life? I'm just gonna quickly highlight four different points that emphasize the work of God's glory in the life of the believer. Number one, the work of God's glory in the life of the believer. God's glory transforms our lives, bringing us new life and intimacy with him through the spirit. 
And this is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he is looking back to Exodus 33 and 34, the passages we just read. And in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul writes, he says, but we all, with unveiled face, everybody say unveiled, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, what is Paul talking about here? Paul is literally thinking of this passage where Moses beholds God's glory. And then chapter 34 says that when Moses comes down off the mountain with the new tablets of the testimony, the Ten Commandments, that he doesn't even know that his face is glowing because he has just been in the presence of God. And the people point this out to him. And Moses, what Moses does is he puts a veil over his face. Now, what's the point of a veil? A veil involves separation. A veil means that you are hiding behind something. Now, they don't really do this too much in in weddings today, but traditionally in weddings, the bride would have a veil over her face, and the groom would be at at the altar with the pastor. And as the bride is coming down to meet her groom, she has a veil over her face. And then when she gets to her groom, the veil is lifted. So a veil is intended to conceal something. And what Paul is trying to point out here is that the glory of the old covenant, when Moses beheld God's glory, yes, it was amazing, but Moses had to conceal his face. There was a separation The Israelites could not access God's glory. There was a veil hiding over Moses' face. But now in Jesus Christ, the Bible says, the veil has been lifted. And now Paul is beckoning us all as believers to go into that special place of intimacy and fellowship with God. Why? Because the veil has been lifted through the power of Jesus Christ. Remember when he died on the cross and said, it is finished. The veil of the temple was torn in two. And the Bible says in John 1.14, For the word became flesh, speaking about Jesus, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. So guess what? When you come into relationship with Jesus Christ, you now have access. There is no veil, Paul says. The veil is removed. So used to be only Moses or God's specific prophets would have access to God. But now in Jesus Christ, we as believers who repent of sin and trust in Jesus Christ, we all as believers now have this new access to God through Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Amen. The veil's been lifted. And now what Paul is saying here in these verses is as you invite God into your life, Jesus Christ, you receive him, the Holy Spirit comes in, and God's glory transforms you from glory to glory meaning the glory of the old covenant to the glory of the new covenant. And that transformative work that God does by his Holy Spirit matures us and grows us and we can now dive in to this intimate place of fellowship with the creator of the universe. This is one of the works of God's glory in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. Number two, God's glory should shape our daily habits, behavior, and activities. God's glory should shape our daily habits, behaviors, and activities. Well, that sounds a little bit legalistic. But 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul would say, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the what? 
glory of God. So God's glory, in light of God's glory, in light of God's beauty and majesty and brilliance and the new relationship I have with him, Paul is saying, listen, not to be legalistic, but there are some questions now as believers we should ask. In view of God's glory, does going there, does saying this, does thinking that glorify God or distract me from it? Does going to that environment, does saying that to my spouse, does thinking those thoughts, does giving in to this addiction, do these things give God glory? Because if they don't, I should avoid it. Some things distract us and deter us from experiencing intimate fellowship with God's glory and his beauty. And if so, we should be cautious to participate. I don't want to participate in anything that detracts or distracts me from honoring God. So Paul says, with God's glory and beauty in mind, we should ask some of these questions and it should shape our daily lives. Who we talk to, who we hang out with, who we marry, who we date, the thoughts we think. All of these things should be shaped by God's amazing beauty and majesty. Number three, God's glory is our hope in times of suffering. Now this should be really encouraging to those of you who are going through very challenging, difficult times. Why? Because Paul would write this in 2 Corinthians 4. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So what Paul is saying here is that in view of the eternal glory that I will one day experience, in view of that, the current difficulty that I'm going through just dissipates in light of the glory that I will experience. The Bible calls heaven just sometimes the glory. And we will share in and experience God's glory on a whole other level. And so with that eternal perspective, it should then help us to take our eyes off of our problems and to put our eyes on God's presence because there there's going to be glory where all of our problems dissipate, where all of our physical ailments and trials and health issues I'm not saying they're trivial, no, but in light of God's glory, the Bible says that this is temporary, this isn't our home, and that should give us encouragement, that this life, the Bible says, is like a vapor, it's going to go by like that. Now, in the midst of your hardship, it feels like the suffering is just so intense, too intense, it's overwhelming, and Paul just gently reminds us as believers, he says, our light and momentary troubles, they are achieving for us. They are working towards the goal of experiencing God's glory, where one day, for all of eternity, there will be no more tears, there will be no more physical pain, there will be no more trials, there will be no more tension between family. And so, this is, a, this, this is what Paul says, this is the work of God's glory in our lives. And then finally, point number four, God's glory should ultimately motivate us to worship. There's a familiar passage in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah the prophet, he writes in Isaiah 6.1, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting high and lifted up on a throne. 
and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And the temple shook and smoke filled the room. And the seraphim, the angelic creatures, cried out one to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And Isaiah, he just says, Woe is me, I am undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And in the midst of just experiencing God's glory, Isaiah just comes to this place of humility where he then hears the creatures of heaven worshiping and praising God, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And it brings us to this place of worship. When you meet with the Lord, when you go deep with the Lord, because the Lord invites you deeper into his presence, you just can't help but just say, woe is me, I'm undone. God, I don't deserve this, I'm a sinner. But Lord, you have lavished your love upon me to the point where all I can do is just worship. Say, holy are you God? The whole earth is filled with your glory. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. And when you just go to that deep place with the Lord, it just motivates us. Just our hearts are just compelled with just this absolute just worship, just on our knees, head covered, just say, God, you're so good. And so what I want to do right now is I want to go, I want to go there with us. And just as I believe that our nation has experienced a figurative cloud over God's glory because of our rebellion. Let it start first within our own lives where there's a revival in our hearts and a revival in the church where we once again are desperate to experience God's presence like no other. Where we just say, God, I want to go deeper than I have with you before. I've been distracted. I've been apathetic. And I just want to meet with you in such an intimate way. Just pour your spirit out and just take me to that deep place where we get to that point where... We boldly ask, as Moses did, God, show me your glory. I want to experience more of your beauty, more of your presence, more of who you are in my life. Be glorified. That's what God wants to do in each and every single one of your hearts, if you would let him. But it takes humility and it takes surrender. And so now I just want to go into that time of prayer. We're going to partake in communion together. The ushers are going to quietly come forward now. Ben is going to lead us in this song. And this song that Ben is going to sing is going to kind of piggyback off of this Isaiah 6 image. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. So would you just go in prayer with me now? And if you feel comfortable all over this room, would you just lift up your hands? There's nothing magical about this, but it's, it's just a heart posture of surrender to the Lord. So raise your hands and just... Surrender to him and say, God, here we are now with hands raised, surrendering to you and saying, Lord, show us your glory. Take us deeper into intimate fellowship with you. Transform our lives by your Holy Spirit. Here we are, humbling ourselves, Lord. Forgive us of sin. Forgive us, Lord, of our sin and meet with us and show us more of who you are. And there was no greater display of your glory than when you came in human flesh and died on the cross for us.
Jesus being the personification of your glory. And we remember your sacrifice today, dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead. And we just ask, Lord, that you would go to work in our lives and take us deeper into your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.